The Literate Caveman, Episode 14, The Logic of Failure, Exponential Growth, and Some Thoughts on How People Have a Hard Time Predicting Changes Over Time. Welcome to the Literate Caveman Podcast. This podcast offers reviews of excellent books that you may not be familiar with, as well as addressing the topic of mindset in general. I'm your host, Chad Blake, and today we are going to continue our review of The Logic of Failure by Dietrich Dorner. In our last review, we discussed how abstract thought makes it more efficient for people to deal with the world and get on with their day. One example we used was that of a chair. Because we all have an idea of what a chair is, we do not have to examine every chair we encounter to make sure it is a chair and not a table or something else altogether. Abstract thought can make us more efficient at times. It allows us to generalize information so we can focus on what interests us. We get into difficulties when we overgeneralize. The first example Dorner provided was of the 17th century mathematician who had a hypothesis for a formula for discovering prime numbers, but only tested it out for four samples. Later, another mathematician disproved his hypothesis, working the formula out until he found a negative sample. We also discussed contextual dependencies and how strategy is dependent on context. In today's episode, we're going to discuss time and space, mostly time, how our perception of time influences our ideas of linear versus exponential growth, and what this all means for you and I when dealing with complex problems. Dorner opens this chapter, chapter 5, by stating we live in a four-dimensional system, three dimensions of space and one of time. Right off the bat, we have complications. Things that we deal with in the three dimensions of space are fairly consistent furniture, houses, etc. And when we are not certain of a configuration in space, we only need to take a second look. We can often do this as many times as we need to, although I feel the need to say that if what you are trying to identify is something such as a bear in the wild, maybe make sure you're in a safe place before you confirm it. <laughs> Time, on the other hand, is something we can only examine in retrospect. He provides an example of a staff meeting it featured a verbal confrontation between three colleagues. He lists the colleagues as A, B, and C. The way Dorner presents the argument illustrates his point about how we can only examine time in retrospect. He tells us that A attacked B's ideas rather harshly. C is a friend of B's and responded by verbally attacking A by defending B. From what Dorner tells us, this verbal assault was not welcomed by the rest of the staff and it weakens C's position. None of this seems unusual from what I have heard of office squabbles. The interesting bit came later. Dorner says, as he was thinking it over later in the day, it occurred to him that A and C both had conflicting proposals. C had a known tendency to overreact. If A had just attacked C outright, it would have been an argument. But his suspicion was that A picked on B, C's friend, to lure C into an overreaction and thus weaken C's position. Hopefully, that is not too confusing. The main point is that as these events were playing out, people were focused on what was happening, and probably the important parts of the argument, and not seeing a strategy unfold. Quoting from the text, Time configurations develop, obviously, over time. When they are only half completed, we cannot predict with certainty what their final form will be. End quote. Dorner asserts 
that because we are constantly presented with spatial configurations, thinking in such terms is natural for us. He mentions that intuition can help us see missing pieces, so to speak, based on symmetry, asymmetry, repetition, and other factors. I know from my years of teaching self-defense that this intuition about special forms is often one of the triggers that alerts a potential victim that something is wrong, and if they recognize the signal, it can provide a chance to remove themselves from a situation. However, when it comes to time configurations, Dorner has observed that people often treat time configurations as individual events, instead of successive steps in temporal development. Dorner feels that what draws our attention to time events is what he calls extrapolation from the moment. Things that really draw our attention, in particular, things that cause an emotional response, he gives the examples of anger, worry, and delight, have a high chance of impacting our predictions for the future. There are two major categories that influence these extrapolations from the moment. The first is a narrow focus on a detail that gets our attention. The second is a belief that the detail that gets our attention is going to continue in a linear and what Dorner calls a monotone fashion. His point in the use of the word monotone is a belief that the detail is not going to deviate or change direction, just experience a linear growth. To illustrate this point, he introduces a couple of interesting scenarios. The first is a logic problem. The second is a story that relates to the problem. The logic problem is this. We have a pond with a surface area of 130,000 square feet. On the pond is a single water lily with one pad that is one square foot in size. After the first week, the lily has produced a second pad. After the second week, it has increased to four pads. After 16 weeks, he tells us the pond is half covered by lily pads. The question he puts forth to the reader is, how much longer will it take before the whole pond is covered? Feel free to pause the audio if you want to give that a little thought. The answer is one more week. That would be the 17th week in this example, and the lily pad would cover the pond. According to Dorner, this logic problem stumps many people. He says the idea of the lily pad doubling so much in one week is something many people have trouble predicting even though it has been doubling every week since the first week. The story that relates to this is there was an East Indian king, and in his court there was an inventor. The inventor had created the game of chess. After presenting this new game to his king, the inventor was offered a reward. Apparently, the king was not a pleasant man, and he presented the idea of a reward in such a condescending way that it, that it annoyed the inventor. So instead of asking for gold or jewels, or an easy, well-paying appointment in the king's court, the inventor asked for rice. One single grain of rice for the first square on the board, then two grains of rice for the second, four grains of rice for the third, eight grains of rice for the fourth, and so on, for all the squares on the board. It is said the king was so delighted at this, he called for a bowl of rice. Apparently, it soon became obvious the bowl of rice was not adequate to the task, and the court mathematician confirmed that the quote-unquote modest request could not be fulfilled. Now, I have mentioned in previous episodes that math is not my superpower, not even close. So I have to admit that I actually do not even know what the number on the page here means. I can tell you that it is more than a billion in fact, it is more than a trillion. 
There are 19 digits in the number Dorner presents, and I apologize that I have no idea what it is. I tried to look it up, but I didn't have any luck. For any of you with a mathematic background, I'm sure it's pretty obvious. The other details he provides are still enormous, but they are a little easier to grasp. He tells us the amount of rice on the final square of the board would amount to 153 billion tons of rice. Another way he puts it, about 31 million cargo ships if each ship can hold 5,000 tons. He points out this is only the rice for the final square. Even the number of the previous square has as many digits, it just starts with a 4 instead of a 9. For Dorner, the interesting thing about this story is not so much the cleverness of the inventor. Incidentally, he does not relate the fate of the inventor, so I don't know how the king reacted to this turn of events. But what Dorner finds interesting is the lack of ability of the king to recognize a certain type of growth. That type of growth is, of course, exponential growth. According to Merriam-Webster, an exponent is a symbol written above and to the right of a mathematical expression to indicate the operation of raising to a power. Dorner tells us a quantity is said to be growing exponentially when its value at any time is its previous value multiplied by a particular number that has to be the same number each time. In the two examples Dorner has provided, both a lily pad problem and the rice story, the number was two resulting in the lily pads and the rice doubling at each stage. The main difference between linear growth and exponential growth is that in linear growth, the quantity increases by the same amount, not the same multiple. And most people seem to have an easier time visualizing and conceptualizing linear growth, even though I don't think linear growth happens in natural systems as much. In general, people seem to have an easier time conceptualizing and visualizing linear growth than other forms of growth, even though, in reality, linear growth doesn't seem to happen very often. Another method for measuring the rate of growth in the exponential example is to express the increase in terms of a percentage of the previous value. In the two examples Dorner provides, that would be a 100% rate of growth. This, he tells us, brings many people closer to familiar territory, with ideas of interest and inflation rates and similar concepts. In that context, a grain of rice can be said to be one grain of rice as an initial investment that paid 100% interest compounded over 63 periods. Now, please don't get fixated on that and get derailed by the impracticality of an investment that paid those kinds of dividends. Keep in mind, we are just trying to organize the concept of exponential growth to help us understand why people have an inherent problem with seeing how time can affect the choices we make. Dorner tells us that even though changing the language to a more familiar form does not make the idea of exponential growth more manageable for most people, as he puts it, an incapacity to deal with nonlinear time configurations is a general phenomenon. In one of his experiments, participants were instructed to estimate how many tractors a manufacturing company would need to make to maintain a 6% rate of growth at certain stages over a period of about 100 years. According to his average results, the actual number would have reached around 350,000 tractors annually, but most participants estimated the final number 
at the end of 100 years to be closer to 50,000. Even with my extremely limited calculating skills, I can see that is short by 300,000. Next, Dorner goes into a fair amount of detail about the spread of the AIDS epidemic from the late 1970s through the early 1990s. He uses a few detailed charts to relate his arguments, but I will try to sum up some of the details here. Actually, I'm going to introduce this section with a quote that comes later in the text. Listen to the entire quote. Don't choke on the opening sentence. Then I'll do what I can to relate his argument, and then I'll close this section out with a quote again. Quoting from the text, We cannot interpret numbers solely on the base of their size. To understand what they mean, we have to take into account the process that produced them, and that is not always easy. End quote. Now, that first sentence is a showstopper. We cannot interpret numbers solely on the base of their size. Anyone could take that soundbite out of context and make me look like a complete idiot from here until the end of social media. But the sentence that follows it is key, and let's see if I can do justice to what Dorner is explaining. He lists three separate effects that need to be considered when trying to predict how something like a pandemic is progressing and or will progress. Those three things are 1. Limited resources, 2. What he calls head starts, and 3. Transient effects. He also reminds the reader of a key point. In order for growth to be exponential, two things are required. One is that resources have to be available. If resources become depleted, exponential growth cannot continue. The second thing is the growth rate must remain constant over time for the growth to be considered exponential growth. We will discuss limited resources first. In the text, Dorner uses the AIDS epidemic to explain his points. It might be worth bringing up, this book was actually published in the, in the 1990s, so it was much closer to when the AIDS epidemic was a dominating feature of people's attention in the media and everything else. When it comes to limited resources in the case of an epidemic or a pandemic, the resource in question is people. In the case of AIDS, the people most likely to contract the disease were those who partook in unprotected sex, especially anal sex, or people who shared needles. There were other cases of transmission through blood transfusions, but thankfully, those were much less common. One of the challenges with AIDS was a person could get infected and not display symptoms for several years. So if an infected individual changed sexual partners a lot or shared needles frequently, they could infect several other people without realizing it. Due to the methods of transmission, the population at risk was much smaller than with the recent COVID pandemic. And in the case of AIDS, once someone was infected, they had it, they could not get infected again. So the resource in the case of AIDS was more limited, and as the disease spread, the rate of spread gradually slowed because so many people in the vulnerable population contracted it. So, limited resource in the case of an epidemic, the resource is people. In the example of the story of the chessboard and the rice, the resource was rice, and it became evident fairly quickly that there was not enough rice available to meet the agreement. So the actual exponential growth paid out would have been much less than the squares on the chessboard. The limited resource would have been used up. This brings us to the subject of head starts. A head start happens when something has been going on for a while undetected. In the AIDS case, because the disease could gestate for years before there were symptoms, once the public became aware of it, 
the Head Start made it appear that the disease was spreading more rapidly than it was. Quoting from the text, Assuming that the first detected cases of a disease are actually the first cases can produce an artificially high initial growth rate. And he goes on to say, Ignoring the length of time between infection and full development of a disease and the variability of this time among individuals can also produce an artificially high initial growth rate. The take-home message is that if we are not aware of or do not recognize a head start, it can make something seem to be spreading faster than it really is. Now on to transient effects. According to Merriam-Webster, transient is defined as passing especially quickly into and out of existence. In the text, Dorner relates how a group of people in West Germany were infected in January of 1978. He tells us that a few people fell ill in a short period of time. However, it was not until 1987 that the illness broke out in the group as a whole. Quoting again from the text, he says, This time range in the onset of illness will initially produce what is known as a transient effect in the growth rate of the disease, making it artificially high. The end result is a number of people who are ill grow faster at the beginning than it will later on. Summing up those three points, Limited resources will cap exponential growth at some point. If the beginning of an exponential event is not recognized and all the known variable is counted at once, it can create a head start. This seems to overlap with the idea of a transient effect. When variable infection rates can make the number of those ill grow faster at the beginning of an event. Returning now to the quote I gave a moment ago, we cannot interpret numbers solely on the basis of their size. To understand what they mean, we have to take into account the process that produced them, and that is not always easy. I need to point out that in the text, Dorner uses a number of graphs to further illustrate his points. There are obvious limitations to a verbal-only discussion of his findings, and I would encourage anyone who, who finds this interesting to get a copy of his book and give it a read. This puts us in a good place to wrap up today's discussion. In our next episode, we will dig a bit deeper into why people are particularly challenged by time sequences, among other things. Thank you for listening. Go read a book.